0: Come to me
1: Okay, we're going to finish chapter 10 today and uh, enter into chapter 11. We have entered into the first and second woe. There's a third woe that is going to come about, and that will come about with the seventh trumpet. This all gets convoluted and difficult, but just know there are seven seals. There's seven trumpets. There's seven vials, and uh, there's some woes that come in there with it. The seventh trumpet to blow is the big one. And that is when everything is going to really come apart, et cetera, et cetera. So we're right before that. We've done the six trumpets, and we're right before that. The seventh uh, trumpet is full of imagery, the third woe, and passages that will come with it. The standard interpretations, if you look at them, they don't hold water in a lot of ways. And so there's other interpretations that have uh, been presented that seem to. We left off in chapter 10 with John having a vision of something he calls a mighty angel and uh, coming down from heaven with a small book in his hand. And we talked about this angel having placed one foot in the sea, which represents the Gentile world, the non-believers, the non-Jews, And placing one foot on land, this mighty angel is straddling those two, which represents Israel, the nation of Israel. He has a book in his hand, and he roars like a lion to the heavens and receives corresponding thunder, seven thunders in response. And John is told, don't write what the thunders say. Don't even include it. We don't know why. We had some conjecture as to why last week. That leaves us off at verse 8. Let's read through to verse 11. And the voice, John says, which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take this little book, which is open in the hand of the angel. Remember, angel is angelos. It just means a messenger. And I strongly suggest this messenger is Christ because of many ways that he's described. Go and take this book, which is open in the hand of the messenger, which stands upon the sea and upon the earth. John says, verse 9, And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. And that ends chapter 10, which is a kind of an inserted chapter between the sixth and seventh trumpet being blown. So go back with me to verse 8, wrapping up of chapter 10. And the voice which I heard from heaven, which was the same voice which told John not to record what the seven thunders said spake again unto me and said go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which stands upon the scene upon the earth and i went unto the angel and said unto him give me the little book and he said unto me take it and eat it up and it shall make thy belly bitter but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey at this point in the new testament we're having echoing we're having a mirror we're having a fulfillment however you want to see it of things in the old testament and here we have a mirroring or fulfilling of the book of things that happened in the book of ezekiel you have to remember in the old testament the prophets were prophesying about the the nation of israel and the end of that age the end of the nation of israel and in the book of revelation we have the fulfillment of many of these things being repeated through john's visions so if you turn with me to ezekiel chapter 2 and just keep your finger in ezekiel chapter 2 Let me read to you what it says there in the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 2, beginning at verse 6, God is engaged in a discussion with Ezekiel about the rebellious nature of the nation of Israel. This has been a repeated theme throughout all of Scripture. God has called his nation to be his. They have rebelled. They have gone after idols. Common theme. He says... And thou, son of man, in Ezekiel chapter uh, whatever it was, uh, what ver- chapter is it? 10? 2, verse 6, sorry. And thou, son of man, be not afraid of them, neither be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns be with thee, and thou dost dwell among scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. And thou shalt speak my words unto them, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are most rebellious, God says to Ezekiel there in the book of Ezekiel. This is the actual state of the nation of Israel in Ezekiel's day. Their hearts, they were rebellious against God. This is not one bit different in John's day at the end of the New Testament. The nation of Israel have had the apostles preach to them, receive Christ, receive Christ. They killed Christ. And now they have just completely gone awry and the nation of Israel is in the same predicament here that they were with Ezekiel. God continues to speak to Ezekiel and he says at verse eight, but thou son of man, hear what I say unto thee, be not thou rebellious like the, that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what i give you and when i looked behold a hand was sent to me and lo a roll of a book was therein so a hand came down from heaven apparently and in it was a scroll this is what john is seeing too we call it a little book remember it's a word in greek that means a very little scroll it doesn't have that much on it It is in the hand of the one coming down and standing on the sea and on the land and he says and I looked. Behold, a hand was sent to me, and a roll was in the book there, uh, and a roll of a book was therein. And he spread it before me, and it was written within and without, both sides. And there was written within lamentations, mournings, and woe. So in Ezekiel, God gives him a book, says, "Eat this. Or take this thing." And on it was written lamentations, woes, and mourning. Well, I can almost guarantee you that in the hand of this messenger or angel that's standing on sea and land in the book of Revelation, what's in his hand is a similar thing. To who? The nation of Israel who killed Christ and is rejecting him through apostolic teachings to receive him before the end of their age. Okay? Here in the hand, it came to Ezekiel bearing the book, and it contains these lamentations and woes. Now, last week or two weeks ago, I said, I think that this little book is a fulfillment of the whole law, because it's a small book. It's not a Bible. I was wrong. Strike that. See, this is why you don't trust me. Strike it. I was wrong. And I was wrong because for it to mirror what's happening with Ezekiel, it wasn't the law of love here. Woe was about to fall upon these people. John was receiving the revelation before it happened. This was uh, in the book of Revelation, God comes to John and says, this stuff is going to happen quickly. Write it down and give it to the seven churches. And so what was in that little book that was in the hand of the angel that stood on land and sea were the woes and lamentations. And I was wrong. It was not the fulfillment of the law and the two great commandments. So I I retract, backtrack. uh, Forget what they call that in newspaper printing. Retraction. It's a retraction. So. That book, John is being told, go and take it. That interpretation is in better harmony with what was in the contents and what John is being told in the next verse, which we'll get to in a second. But go back to uh, the next chapter of Ezekiel, which is a continuation of chapter 2, where God keeps talking to him. And in in Ezekiel chapter 3, God continues, and he says to John, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat that thou findest, Eat this roll and go speak unto the house of Israel. So we know that John, uh, that Ezekiel was said, Eat this roll. Now, for you biblical literalists out there, John is given a a roll from a hand of God, uh, a scroll, and he's told to eat it. Did he really eat it? You biblical literalists, you King James onlyists, did he really eat it? in john's uh, vision he's told to eat the scroll did he really eat it or is that symbolic well come on it's symbolic it, it, it's it's symbolic of something that he is doing and we'll talk about that so ezekiel's told to eat this scroll we know that john was literally the last one last apostle living all the rest have been killed now here we are at the end of the age Before it's wiped out completely, and John is there in proximity to the house of Israel who's been rebellious. And we read uh, Ezekiel say, so I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat that roll. This is Ezekiel. And he said unto me, son of man, cause thy belly to eat and fill thy bowels with this roll that I give thee. Then I did eat it and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. Now, obviously, this is a direct quote that is used in Revelation. It's a mirror. It's a fulfillment. It's what Ezekiel saw is now happening to John with the wrapping up of that end of the age. And he said unto me, going back to Ezekiel 3, Son of man, go, get thee unto the house of Israel, now that he's eaten the scroll. And speak my words to them. You notice he has to eat the words first. That's what's written on scrolls, words. And then Ezekiel has to go and preach to them. What's he preaching? You better change your ways because woe and lamentation and mourning is coming down the pike for you, right? For thou art not sent to a people of a strange speech with a hard language, it says in Ezekiel, but to the house of Israel. Now, this is the same as John. John was not sent here with the message to the seven churches, with revelation to a people that were strange or with a hard language, he was sent to his own to tell him, this is what God is saying, the end is gonna look like. We're about to open up the seventh woe. And when that opens up, it's bye-bye, mofo. You are gone, brother. It is over with, did I say mofo? You're dead in the water you better just repent and change your ways. Well, that was what Ezekiel said. That is what John is being told to say too. And then it says at verse six and seven of Ezekiel, not too many people of a strange speech and of a hard language whose words thou can't not understand. Surely I had sent thee to them that they would hearken to you. This is John's call too. But the house of Israel will not hearken unto thee, God says, for they will not hearken unto me for all the house of Israel are hardened and hard-hearted. Okay. So that was, as was the house of Israel. They were hard-hearted in John's time. So there's the context. When Ezekiel was told to do this, the people, God t- says, they're not going to listen to you. And they, what happened to them? Because they didn't listen to Ezekiel. They were taken captive and put into bondage into Babylon. Here in Revelation, the remnant of the nation is being told by the last living apostle representing Christ to them that something is coming along the way that you do not want to meet with. You want to be saved from that, taken up and removed from that. Whether you go to Pella and escape physically or whether Christ comes and sucks you up as his church, which is what I believe happened, you need to get escape this, and the way you do it is by admitting your sin and going to Christ, okay? But with Ezekiel, it was Babylonian captivity. With John, it's the Romans, a thousand times worse that are coming in. And they are bringing in the final blow to the house of Israel as a people. Now, I know i reiterate this. We are under the impression that the house of Israel continues. We're under the impression that we know their genealogy. We do not. We don't even know who's a Jew over there. Everybody claims to be, but there are so many ideas about different people groups came into Jerusalem afterward and mingled with others, and, and they don't have a priest because they don't have a genealogy, they don't have a temple. They don't have any of that. It's just the state of Israel we're talking about, not the house of Israel. Why? The house of Israel was wiped out in 70 AD and scattered if they weren't killed. So all this ideation that we have a nation there, that we are still waiting for them to come together and build a temple and we need to pay homage to them and and God's going to come back and make them his people and all that, believe me, I love the Jewish people. Uh, I'm very attracted to them as a people, not anti-Semitic, so don't take this as anti-Semitism. But bottom line, the scripture tells us, in Christ Jesus, there's neither male nor female, nor Jew or Gentile nor bond or free, all are one. We keep trying to say they, they, they. In Christ, there's no they, it's done with. There's just people now, and all have to come to God through Christ by faith, you see? We note that the role Ezekiel was commanded to eat, he said, he found it in his mouth to be sweetness. But with John's case, that was admitted, but John adds, but in my belly, it was bitter. Ezekiel doesn't say that. Last week we talked about the mystery that was in a passage uh, that we discussed last week, how the mystery of God was now being fulfilled in John's day, right? What was the mystery Paul told us? It's the gentiles are going to be brought into the house of Israel. That's the great mystery that the Jews couldn't comprehend. The great mystery is going to be unfolded here, and this is going to happen at the fulfillment of the seventh seal. When the seventh seal is all done, that's when the mystery is going to be completed. We studied and read that last week. Apparently, before this seventh seal is opened and the contents are unleashed upon Israel, John was supposed to go and preach one last time. Don't miss this. It's right here in the scripture. It's the last verse of chapter 10. Here, the angel, the messenger, gives John the, the scroll. He says, eat it. Just like he said to Ezekiel, John eats it, and it was sweet in his mouth, but boy, when it got to his digesting it, that's the difference, tasting it versus digesting, it gave him a stomachache. It was making him nauseous. Why? Because it was of lamentation and woe and mourning. Upon the people he was called to come and save, that Jesus came to redeem and save, he was eating the scroll, and he knew the words that are going to come out of my mouth are going to be your. Almost done. You've got to change. So we know that John has to go and preach one more time in his life. Now, just remember that. John has to go preach one more time in his life. We'll get to that. So John says, and I went unto the angel and said, give me the book. In the English, that sounds so rude. Give me the book. And he said unto me, take it. Another rude response. It doesn't sound real friendly, but of course, I'm sure it was. I'm not sure why Ezekiel was given a book by a hand that came down and gave it to him. But here, John has to go to the angel and take the book. Now, maybe it's because the angel symbolically is holding off the nations, the Gentiles with one foot in the sea and another foot on land, the nation of Israel. That, that angel is holding them back from killing each other. And and so John has to go to the angel to get the book because the angel's busy holding back, it's just symbolic, the two sides that are gonna go to war continue in war and kill each other off. So John has to go to it. The angel says, go. The voice says, go and get from the angel this book. Whatever the case, John was commanded to go and get it and it was brought to Ezekiel and like Ezekiel, John is commanded to eat it. Again, literal or figurative. And if it's literal, like all things in the scripture are literal, then we've got a lot of questions to ask ourselves about scripture. Probably about, I don't know, maybe 95 to 120 passages that if they're literal, we are in serious psychological trouble. But if they're figurative and to be understood spiritually, that leads us to another problem. Who gets to decide whose spiritual interpretation is right? So that leads us to the final thing is that, you know, there's going to be differences, but let's love along the way. You see, that's how we get to that point of it's love that matters and not the doctrine and not the disputes because there are going to be disputes along the way. If it's figurative, we have a huge problem of who gets to decide which way is the right way. And if it's literal, we have a whole bunch of other issues. So the answer seems to be the spirit working upon individuals. We're responsible for what we believe and move on as defined by scripture. And you know, I've had this conversation recently, I submit to you that that's God's de- doing. I really do. I think if you step back and think about it, you could first say, everything is understandable and we understand everything exactly how the Bible says it. We've done this on the show and we have people call in and tell, tell us that and then you just throw one thing at them. Well, what about baptism? The Bible tells us, what does it say? And then you start going into all the things about baptism that people disagree on. And that's just one subject, right? So the first thing people do is they say, the Bible tells us everything. And then they step back and say, well, it doesn't really tell us everything because we dispute everything. So then what is it doing? And maybe God set it up so that we would have differences of opinion and we would see things differently. His son finished all the work. His son did it all. We've had the victory. And if we have a dispute, do we still love each other? Or do we factionalize and do we break up and do we fight and kill and maim and do all the things that religions do to each other? So consider that because, (sighs) all right, those who make enemies over differences of opinion seem to miss the point. So whatever your opinion is about all this stuff is really irrelevant to me, and hopefully it's irrelevant to you. We are trying to figure it out, but in love we can disagree. All right. So we point out last week that this is the same language used here that Jeremiah used. He says it in his book, unlike, uh, I mean, like Ezekiel, Jeremiah 15, 16. Thy words were found, and I did eat them, Jeremiah says. And thy word was unto me a joy and rejoicing in my heart. So Ezekiel and Jeremiah eat the words, and they're all, they have a rejoicing effect upon them when internalized and digested. But John, he does the same thing, and they were tasty, But boy, they turned his stomach bitter and sour, and for a good reason. In the Vulgate, which we know is the Latin translation uh, of the Bible, uh, the word for eat is propinere, imbibre, vivere, and gelatire, and they're all terms that describe greediness of of consuming, okay? So, uh, we have a similar expression when we talk about a book we love or a steak we love or a meal that we love we say i devoured it i just devoured that thing right and that is what the word is meaning here for john to eat it's not just sample and it says really consume it devour it just go at it with all your passion to get it into your body Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and John were being told by God to greedily consume the information and the scrolls they were given. There's a reason for that, because in doing so, they would receive spiritual nourishment where they would in turn turn around. God's word does not return void, as crude as that is in the reference, but it turns around and we speak it back out. So the scroll that's eaten in a non-literal sense becomes spiritual food to both Ezekiel, Jeremiah and John and when they've consumed it and digest it the result is not it don't going to the void the result is them speaking speaking out right John would experience something different because that speaking out is going to be speaking out bitterness where Ezekiel and, and, and Jeremiah, the words were soothing and wonderful to them. Um, so just some food for thought uh, on the tongue. I'll, I'll skip that. Jeremiah, like Jeremiah, John would find those imprecations of God woeful, Jeremiah went and he wrote lamentations after he consumed the book. And so we have a tie there between Jeremiah's reaction to consuming the scroll that was joyous to him, but in the end it didn't work and Jeremiah was a man of sorrows and woe and he wrote lamentations about how uh, they refused to respond to his words. And we have to wonder why they tasted good, the words of God going in to John, but why they made him sick. Maybe the words were satisfying initially, we really don't know. Verse 10, John says, and I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up and it was in my mouth sweet as honey and as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. Instantly, as soon as. Verse 11, and this is an important passage to a reasonable understanding of scripture. And the angel said to me, you ready? Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. John, you've been through all of this. You must prophesy again now that you've eaten the scroll like Ezekiel and Jeremiah did. Get out there and share what's going to happen to this nation. Right here, the messenger tells John, you're going to have to prophesy again. And that means he says to, and all the words are broken down, the ethnos, and the uh, Basilia, the nations, the Glossia, the kings. You're going to go out and do this, and you're going to share this with them because we are right before that seventh seal is going to be opened. And so get out and share what you've eaten, right? After eating the book given to him, Ezekiel was told, go and prophesy to the nation of Israel and do what? Predict their destruction. Predict their bondage. Guess what he did? He went out, and guess what happened? exactly what he said would happen. So if this revelation was given to John after the destruction of Jerusalem, how would John be a type for Ezekiel? Did you hear me? If, as almost all Christians say, John received this revelation in 90 AD or 95 AD when Jerusalem and Israel, all the Galilee, all the surrounding area was wiped out, scorched earth by the Roman army. John in 90, 95 AD receives a revelation and in it the, the messenger says, now go out and preach all the seventh seal stuff the things that you, that are coming upon, that you've consumed. Now go preach it to the nations and kings and tongues and people. Why? There's none of his people left. They are gone, dispersed, scattered, killed, dead. So (laughs) it wasn't like the days of Noah and Methuselah here. John was about 90 years old or older when this revelation came, if he got it in 90, 95 AD. So God said, hey, John, you are really old now. You're not like Methuselah. 90 was old. And you're going to go out to all nations and kingdoms, tongues and people, and you're going to share this to a people that don't exist. Does that make any sense? What does make sense is that the book of Revelation as proven by so many of those facts we've covered in the early study of Revelation was given to him much earlier. When John was a younger man and the nation of Israel was still intact, the temple was still there, the people were still gathering to that, and he eats the scroll before the 7th seal is open and John is said now go out told to go out to all those people and do what he has done before. He's now in his 40s, 50s, 60s that's a difference even that's hard but that's a different story from being in your 90s and going out to preach to people who don't exist can you see why the dating of revelation in 90 to 95 is a mistake and it's only based on one real uh piece of evidence which is which is shaky at best but the internal evidence from the book of revelation support so well that this book that this revelation was given to john dozens of years before 70 A.D. and before 90 A.D., probably more like 60 or 50 or 40, even down into the uh, late 30s, they think John could have started to receive these revelations which he compiled and brought forward. That makes sense now that the angel's telling him you're gonna go out and preach, okay? It's right there John is being told that. All right, let's read through. That's the end of chapter 10. Let's read through as we do the whole chapter of 11, and then we'll come back and hit verse by verse, a few verses, and stop there. And there was given to me, John says, a reed like, un- like unto a rod, and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar, and then that worship therein. But the court, which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles And the holy city, shall they tread underfoot for 42 months. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand, two hundred and three score days, clothed in sackcloth. We're getting into some heavy stuff now, guys. Now we're getting into the witnesses, and the ones who are gonna be killed and lay dead. And now we're, this, chapter 11 is, now it's just really getting wild. And these are, these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. If any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouths and devours their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. Now, the futurists have been saying, we're waiting for this to happen. The witnesses to come and be preaching in Jerusalem and kills all their enemies, right? Great movies have been made about this stuff. Forgetting all the context, forgetting the timing, this, this, this imagery. And these have the power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have the power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. How are we going to answer this? Where was this ever fulfilled before 70 AD? This is heavy stuff, right? And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of that great city, which I was taught as a Mormon or two Mormon missionaries, by the way, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, which also our Lord was crucified. And they of the temple and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. lot to talk about. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, come up hither. And they ascended into the heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And the same hour was a great earthquake, and the 10th part of the city fell, and in the earthquake were slain of men 7,000, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. Then we begin a new section, which is the beginning of the seventh seal opening up, which we're gonna to begin to cover in these next weeks. At verse 14, it says, "'The second woe is past, "'and behold, the third woe comes quickly now.'" "'The seventh angel sounded,' verse 15." Now, that's the, this is the final introduction, this is the final phase. And there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and 20 elders which sat before God on their seats, fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and was and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned, and the nations were angry and, their, and thy wrath is come and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto the servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, great and small, and should destroy them that destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in the temple the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and a great hail. And we're going to continue to go on in the weeks to come, talking about chapter 12 and 13 and 14 and this this apocalyptic description of the seventh seal. But go back with me to verse one of chapter 11. First of all, I think we have to point out that chapter 11, remember there were no chapter breaks in the early manuscripts, there were no verses. In fact, I believe that's to the detriment of the scripture, not to the betterment. Yeah, it's better for citing chapter and verse, which is great for arguing but it is not good for a continuation of thought. And so the Greeks who were great arguers, they were the ones who brought in this legal idea of breaking up the scripture into uh, chapters and verses and the books, and they arbitrarily decided when to do it. And so what we have is a a, a decontextualizing of the text of the Bible, of the books. We have broken up, just like a legal pad has lines. If you've ever filed an affidavit, and it's one, two, three, four, five, and you have these lines, and the lawyer gets up and says, on line 28, you said, well, but I didn't mean it, on line 36, you said this. This is a contradiction. How did they do it? Because the numbers. And so in scripture, when we take the Bible and we number it and chapterize it, we have an ability then to become apologists for it. Yeah, but in verse this, it says, yeah, but in verse that, and we become arguers instead of, and lawyers instead of lovers, you see? And that's such a mistake. Well, here, chapter 10 and 11 have been broken up. Chapter 11 is a continuation of John, and it's not that big of a deal, but there are some chapters in the New Testament where the breaking up part is a big deal. It should never have happened where it happened, and it leads to all sorts of problems in understanding context. So at chapter 14, we see that break. Go back to verse 1. I mean, at at, at this chapter break, verse 1. After eating the little book, John is told at the last verse of chapter 10, prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Then in verse 1, John says, and there was given to me. Okay, so this is just a continuation of the discussion. A reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. He does not say who who gave him the measuring reed, but the logical conclusion is that the mighty angel gave it to him. And remember, it's all symbolic. So it's just figurative imagery that John is using to help us understand. This word reed means a jointed hollow stock. If you've seen bamboo, it has the joints. You know, If you draw bamboo, it goes like this, and it comes out, and it has that joint, and it goes up. That's what this is, it's a reeded, jointed stock, hollow in the middle, could be strong on the outside. And it's usually cut in certain lengths for measuring things. And in Matthew 27, 29 through 30, it is also used a stock as a mock scepter that's given to Christ uh, before he's crucified. Here is your scepter, Jesus. Um, And then it's also used these stocks as writing utensils, of course, much smaller. The reed that was put into John's hand was of such that it was a respectable size so that he could measure the temple of what he, uh, the part of the temple he was told to measure. And the word is used to uh, in e, uh, Psalm 74, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, as a measurement tool. So there again, we have some parallels to Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The line here in the King James, and it may not matter to you, and the angel stood asking, is not in any of the manuscripts. Doesn't matter, but it's not. The angel didn't stand and ask. Uh, according to all other reliable manuscripts, the angel did nothing of the sort. But for some reason, the King James translators probably through Jerome's Vulgate, decided to add that one in there. The angel stood and asked, uh, whatever it's worth, doesn't, you know, alter too much. And the command is given to John, rise and measure the temple of God. Okay, you ready? If this revelation was received in 90 or 95 AD, why doesn't John say, what temple? You destroyed the temple. It's the only one we have on Mount Moriah. It's not there. You're giving me a revelation 25 years after the fact, 95 AD, you're telling me to go and measure a temple with this rod, what temple do you want me to measure? Oh, a future one? Or do you want me to measure one in, in the vision? Just think about this, where's the temple? If it was John being told to measure a new future temple, this is what people will say, that would be built at least 2,000 years later, because it hasn't been built yet, we would think John would have said something like, and I looked and I saw a new temple to be built. And I saw a, f- a temple of the future to be built. But there's no distinguishing anything here. John is simply told, measure the temple, okay? John seems to take this command completely in stride. There's no, nothing written, and I wondered, Lord, what temple are we talketh about? But nothing, Right? which tells me this revelation was given again well before the destruction of the temple. So when John is told to go and measure it, (laughs) we have one present. This is another internal evidence that the book of Revelation was written well before 90 or 95 AD, when almost every Christian in the world has just lazily accepted. Oh yeah, that's when, oh. And so when you accept that it was written that long ago, after Jerusalem's destroyed, then you can say, we're waiting for all of that to still happen. And so it's really convenient to the futurist idea that all of this stuff's going to happen to us for it to have been written in 1995 AD. And what does that do? If Jesus is still coming and we're waiting for his return, then we better get our butts in church. Truly, I believe that. We had better follow what is going on in the New Testament because he's coming to get his church which was built upon the prophets and apostles and, and pastors and teachers, and all of that should be uh, in place, including apostles who are guiding the church today to make sure that he comes and can get it, you see? And so holiness and the way we're living and all the descriptions that are going on in the New Testament are so important if he hasn't come yet. And in order for him to not have come yet, this book of Revelation has to have been written in 9095 AD. But the internal evidence tells us no. And people gloss over it because they want to believe we are still waiting and I better be ready for that coming, you see. John takes the command in stride. This little insight gives us more evidence for revelation to have been given well before the destruction of the temple, which was in 70 AD, than almost anything else in the Bible. Go and measure the temple, okay? Now, a great response to this is, Well, John saw this in vision, so whether it was a standing temple or destroyed, John would have been able to measure a visionary temple. Now we go more to less literal and more to spiritual. This is true, but I submit that the angel or God would have told John to measure the temple that once stood. I submit that to you. Now, I realize they didn't have to. Or measure the temple that will be. I think that would be fair and kind of God to do that so that we today would know it's a futuristic building that will be built, and John is measuring that, right? Um, but we get nothing out of the ordinary, sir. I suggest that the temple was still standing, which was one of the most compelling proofs that Revelation was written before it was destroyed. Listen to the full context and content of verse 1 one more time. But there was given to me a rod like unto, a a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God. Not in in any other translation. And the altar, measure the temple of God and the altar, and them that worship therein. But the court, which is without the temple, leave out. And measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles. These are the exact specifications of how the uh, uh, temple of ancient Israel were built. The court, the altar, everything that ancient Israel there was built. So, and he goes on, And the holy city shall tread under foot forty and two months. And the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. And we'll cover what that means next week. So, how else can we tell that this was the temple of the first century and not a future one? First, there's not one verse in the entire Bible, stay with me, ever, that speaks directly of a temple being, needing to be rebuilt, ever. Um, that alone should tell you something. Now, we talk about as if there is a temple to be rebuilt, and we speak of it as if it's a passage, but it's not. What people do is they infer that a temple will need to be rebuilt, because it would be physically impossible for, as 2 Thessalonians 2.4 says, a man of sin to sit as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God, if there's no temple. So when they read 2 Thessalonians 2.4, and we read that there's this guy called the man of sin that's supposed to still come, he's got to sit in a temple, a temple needs to be rebuilt. That's where we get the idea that a a, a temple is gonna be rebuilt. It's just inferred. However, if the man of sin was coming and on the scene and he did sit in the temple that was already there, there's no need for a future one to be built. So what we say is the man of sin hasn't come. We're still waiting for the Antichrist to rise up out of uh, Germany and have a 666 on his head and be called Damien. So they also say that it's physically impossible to make daily sacrifice. Daniel 8 talks about daily sacrifice being made again, right? If no daily sacrifice, I mean, daily sacrifice can't be offered if there's no temple. So there's another inference. We read that in the future there will be daily, sacrifice. There, if there's no temple, there's no daily sacrifice. So therefore, that's how it all is. Therefore, there must be. Daniel 8, 14 explicitly says that after 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Again, physically impossible to cleanse a sanctuary that doesn't exist. Therefore, a new temple must be be built, and after 2,300 days, uh, it will be cleansed. Ah, we know there's a new temple coming, right? But Ezekiel does not explicitly say that this new temple will be built, ever. But it describes a future temple in great detail and explicitly says that, it is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. That's in Ezekiel 43.7. That verbiage leads. Ah, that's a, that's a sure win. There's got to be a temple because God promises them that he will come and he will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever and the temple will be his throne. From this, people assume all of this about the new temple. I'm going to quote from a work by a guy named Steve Gregg. So I'm plagiarizing his words here now. And his article first appears in practical hermeneutics column, uh, the practical hermeneutics column of Christian Research Journal, volume 35, number 03, 2012. Okay, I'm borrowing heavily from him. The book of Ezekiel closes with a vision of the temple and its associated rituals. We have to admit that. Sorry, I got a drink. The messenger gives Ezekiel a tour of the temple, measuring the various walls, courts, and gates. See John being told the same thing. At one point, the glory of the Lord, which was seen departing from the temple in an earlier vision, chapter 10 in Ezekiel, is seen returning to inhabit the temple, chapter 43. Then in the following chapters, they describe the sacrificial rituals performed by the priests, special attention is given to the role of one who is referred to as the prince near the end and a river is seen flowing out of the temple from under the threshold that's very symbolic imagery okay the book closes with portions of the land assigned to various tribes that's old testament that's what the vision was biblical scholars acknowledge that the temple vision which occupies the last nine chapters of ezekiel presents special challenges in its interpretation. Some have even described it as the most difficult passages in the Old Testament. So again, we are talking about the most difficult book in the New Testament is Revelation. Without a doubt, I've talked through them all. This one is a brute. The most difficult, again we have the most difficult passages are found in the passages that are relating to the idea of a new temple being built in Ezekiel. By far, the greater difficulty has to do with identifying the time and manner of the fulfillment of the vision rather than the vision itself. So, first of all, ask yourself, this temple is it Solomon's temple. When Ezekiel saw the vision, it was 573 BC, so no temple was standing in Jerusalem at this time. Okay, did you know that? Solomon's temple, which had previously stood had been destroyed 13 years earlier by Nebuchadnezzar when uh, he conquered Jerusalem and deported its citizens to Babylon. This means that Ezekiel was not seeing Solomon's temple or any temple that was actually standing at the time. What temple was Ezekiel shown? Is it Zerubbabel's temple? Perhaps the answer first comes to mind would be that this was the temple that uh, came to be built under the leadership of Zerubbabel on the return of the Jews from Babylon. When they got out of captivity, they came and they built another temple. However, this solution seems to be ruled out by the fact that Zerubbabel's temple ended up being much smaller and less elaborate than the one that Ezekiel describes. So you can't say it was this next temple after they got out of captivity because Ezekiel describes one that is much less intricate and uh, developed. If Ezekiel was prophesying that the temple built by the returning exiles would fit this description, the prophecy failed to come true, and this is not an option for those who believe in the reality and inspiration of Scripture. Can't do it. So anyone who says, well, that was Zerubbabel's temple, say, that doesn't fit. Other interpretations, therefore, are offered up by evangelical scholars. Some Christian commentators have understood the content of Ezekiel's chapters as an apocalyptic vision, which is best interpreted spiritually. They point out that the church in the New Testament is often referred to as God's temple or habitation. So what Ezekiel is describing is a spiritual edifice, nothing to do with an actual one. Each Christian is a living stone, as 1 Peter 2, 5 built, along with others upon a foundation already laid of apostles and prophets, and we are spiritual stones that make up a lively house. You remember that the apostles taught this in the New Testament. That's the description of the temple that uh, some are saying, this is what Ezekiel was describing. On this view, the features of the temple worship, which include priests, altars, sacrifices, blood rituals, would be spiritually discerned and applied not literally so when you read ezekiel thing talking about daily sacrifices we're not talking about animals and blood is the way it comes in particular ezekiel provides a description of a flowing river which i just said in 40, chapter 47 uh, and that supports a non-literal interpretation uh, the water being probably symbolic of the Holy Spirit flowing out of the spiritual temple to r- reach the world and, and people being moved to Christ because of it. If this c- is the correct view, this Steve Gregg writes, we would be required either to see many of the tedious details as being either superfluous in Z- Ezekiel's account or corresponding to spiritual ideas that would be very difficult to identify with any confidence. Is it the millennial temple? That's that's the next one. Another view of this vision commonly held among futurists, dispensationalists, is that Ezekiel's temple will be established after the second coming of Christ and will serve as a worship center for all people during the millennium. This is big with the LDS when they speak of eschatology and it's big with uh, denominations like Calvary Chapel where I came from, uh, you know, and, and, and I can't tell you. Um, I listened to Chuck Smith's teaching of the Bible through twice uh, when I was going through school of ministry. And back in 1972, Smith was saying, I got on good, ac- I have it on good account that uh, all the materials are being sent to Jerusalem to erect the new temple put it together and uh, I have friends who have donated a tremendous amount of money so that the pillars can be... It's all just this stuff we say to try to keep the dream alive. On this view, the one described as the prince is often identified as Christ himself. That's what futurists say, ruling over his millennial kingdom. In choosing among these options, we are compelled to decide between our hermeneutic, the way we are going to interpret scripture. That's what it comes down to. When you decide one way that you've agreed to of what the temple is, what you're really saying is, this is how I choose to interpret and understand scripture. If choosing among these options I've just given you, we are compelled to decide between these hermeneutics. uh, Listen, one of the chief hermeneutic principles recommend that dispensationalist scholars recommend is that you want to maintain a consistent literal application as you read the bible again futurists dispensationalists waiting for all of this to happen preach we have to maintain a consistent literal application of everything you read in the bible from Genesis to Revelation, a consistent literal application of everything you read in the Bible. That's their hermeneutic. This would mean that spiritualizing the text is a departure from the most faithful handling of Scripture. If you try to spiritualize anything, this vision that John is having, you spiritualize any of it, you are departing from the most sound hermeneutic that you can employ. Therefore, dispensationalists argue for a literal, physical building to be established to fulfill Ezekiel's vision. Since the temple erected after Ezekiel's time did not fit Ezekiel's description, they believe there must be another temple in the future that will do it to a T. You see, because they take it literally, they say it hasn't happened literally, Zerubbabel's didn't, Solomon's didn't, there must be one in the future. There are some problems with that the most obvious is presented in the book of hebrews now we get to the new testament especially chapter 10 1 through 18 i know this has been heavy hang with me this speaks of the death of christ on the cross as a termination of the efficacy of bloody animal sacrifices the termination of the efficacy of bloody animal sacrifices, which the Jews did in their literal material temple. Hebrews says, terminated by Christ on the cross. So when he said it's finished, he included all animal sacrifice. If Ezekiel's vision applies to a future time, why do we read there the offering of animal sacrifices? The dispensationalist answer, which I was taught, is that millennial sacrifices aren't intended to atone for sin. The blood of Christ precludes for the need of any of that. Just as the Old Testament sacrifices anticipated Christ, they will say, this millennial sacrifice will commemorate his death on the cross. And so when they kill animals in this future temple that's gonna be built, by the way, the red heifer has been born, and is being raised right now on pure grain, and is gonna come out, sorry, that's some of my sarcasm, but I've heard that one too, that, that these sacrifices are commemorative of what Christ did on the cross. The text of Ezekiel, however, seems to preclude this since the various offerings in the temple are to, listen, make atonement for the house of Israel. That's in Ezekiel 45, 17. That is what the sacrifices are for. So where the futurists say, no, those those are commemorative, Ezekiel tells us that the sacrifices are to make atonement. And it totally wipes out what Hebrews tells us. It says that he didn't finish. He didn't do it. There is more to come. That's a major problem with the futuristic eschatology cannot get around that the sacrifices described in Ezekiel are presented as atonement for sin and not commemorative. Do you recall that Christ himself recommended, do you remember what he said we should use or until he comes, uh, the emblems to commemorate his death? He said bread and wine. Those are the commemoration tools of his death until he comes. Not animal sacrifices. So when people take the content of Ezekiel and they say it's to commemorate, that's, that's, it's like blasphemy. against what Christ said to commemorate his death by which is wine and broken bread. Why would God replace this with animal sacrifice in which God admits all through scripture that he doesn't find any particular pleasure in killing animals and shedding their blood? I mean, that's all through it. And suddenly we're going to come back and do it. And I have had every type of, EXPLANATION GIVEN TO ME FROM ZEALOUS, FERVENT, WELL-MEANING FUTURISTS. OH, BUT IT, OH, BUT IT, BUT IT DOESN'T FIT WITH, MOST IMPORTANTLY, WHAT THE NEW TESTAMENT TELLS US CHRIST DID IN FULFILLING. FURTHER, EZEKIEL SAYS THAT THE PRINCE WILL OFFER A SIN OFFERING. LISTEN, FUTURISTS SAY THIS PRINCE IS CHRIST. EZEKIEL 45 SAYS FOR THE PRINCE HIM, HE WILL OFFER UP A SIN OFFERING FOR HIMSELF and for all people. Oh, he's going to offer up a sin offering for all people, they say. Do you see that's going to be Christ? No, 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 no. That's not what it says. It says he's going to offer up this animal sacrifice for himself and for all people. You mean Christ is going to offer up animal sacrifice? No. So they're misreading that as well. If the prince is required to offer sacrifices for his own sins, that goes against the theory that it identifies him as Christ Jesus. Other objections to the idea of Ezekiel's vision include the future worship will uh, include um, centralized worship, that this is part of a geographical place that is happening. This was a common expectation of the Old Testament prophets, that the temple would be the centralized point of worship uh, where people would come to the tabernacle and later from all locations to and from the central location. But Jesus told the Samaritan woman, do you remember when he met her? He said, listen, The time of centralized worship is soon to end and be replaced with spiritual worship, and it doesn't depend on whether you're in this temple in Samaria or that temple in Jerusalem. The time now is, he says, where worship will not be done in either place. You see? But they're trying to bring it back in that there's going to be this central location from which where Christ will reign over his millennial kingdom. Doesn't fit. Also, Ezekiel's vision, the Levites and the Aaronic priesthood are seen in their former place of service. According to the New Testament, there's been a change of priesthood. That's Hebrews 7:12, And the Jewish priesthood was replaced by a different priesthood. 1 Peter 2, 5. Uh, excuse me, 1, 5. 1 Peter 2, 5. And a non-Aaronic high priest would replace that Former priest. In Ezekiel's vision, we have all the high priests, we have all the former Aaronic priests in place, and the Levites doing their gig. But the fulfillment of Christ in Hebrews tells us that he is the new priesthood. He's the new high priest. And he comes from a line that is not of this earth. It's from King Melchizedek, from which he uh, derived or from which he actually mirrored in, in his life. So these difficulties of the dispensational interpretation are insurmountable. They, I don't think they can be fit. And while literal interpretation is good when we can do it, and uh, it's best... Um, in many cases, but there is something that overrides literal interpretation. And um, this is how this, this is what I learned from this Steve Grigg guy. Namely, the superior revelation given in Christ, especially in the book of Hebrews. If we have a bunch of stuff that's supposed to literally take place because what prophets were seeing and then Christ comes and gives us the fulfillment of it, that is the hermeneutic which is superior to a literal one which you're trying to apply from Genesis to Revelation. For example, Hebrews 1, 1-3 affirms that God in times past spoke to his people by prophets. It says that, but Hebrews says, but in these last days... And that means the end of their age, before everything was going to be destroyed, he has spoken to us by his son. Again, the mirror, the image, the fulfillment. And that is why Hebrews is so valuable because it tells us all the stuff that people are looking for a literal material fulfillment of is, is fulfilled in Hebrews. If you want to make a study of any book in the New Testament and you want to understand what the Old Testament looks like relative to the New Study Hebrews. We do it verse by verse. You can see it in under meet in, in campus. The New Testament is not a mere appendix to the writings of the Old Testament prophets. It's a revelation of the new order Christ brings and stops all of it. It is finished, done, and it's the consummation of everything described in and through him. People insist on going back to the Old Testament, and they say, well, this needs to happen, and that needs to happen, when the reality has it's all happened and been fulfilled through him. This is easily forgotten when people place the written word and a literal interpretation over the fact that God in these last days has said it all by his son. When you, if you don't extract that and you include that in your hermeneutic, no matter what you're trying to think, that God in these last days for them has spoken to the world by his son, We have a fulfillment of everything, if you believe Hebrews, but if you don't, remember Jesus said to the Pharisees, you love the scripture, it speaks of me. He said that, it it, it all talks about me. This being the case, it would be foolish for us to seek a meaning of the prophets contrary to what Christ and his apostles taught about himself. And it is their witness that provides the strongest objections to any literalistic interpretation of Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. In Christ's new order, we're almost done, which unlike the old order is permanent and unchangeable. The book of Hebrews makes this clear through the Greek. It is permanent. It cannot be changed. That word means it can't even be transferred. There's nothing that can happen with this priesthood that Christ has. It is unchangeable and and cannot be transferred to anybody, which is a great argument for the LDS who think they have a Melchizedek Priesthood. And therefore, unlike the old order, which was impermanent and transferable and changeable, the temple priesthood and spiritual sacrifices read about are all spiritual and spiritually understood. Lose sight of this and you lose sight of Jesus having had the victory. Uh, Guarantee it. And so how are we to understand the temple vision of Ezekiel? First, one might reasonably refer to the vision as to what might have been, which is often the case with the house of Israel, had they listened, had they taken the time to receive, had they been willing to hear. When Jesus stood over them, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have called you and would have gathered you like a chicken under her wings. What did he say? But you were predestined not to? No. He said, but you would not. You would not. So when we read about God saying, this will happen, this will happen, I think we can say predicated upon your willingness to receive it. But if you would not, Christ comes and he fulfills it all. There is a strong indication that the realization of this vision in Israel's future was contingent upon the people being sufficiently ashamed and repentant of their past sins. That stuff doesn't have anything to do with us, but it has to do with them. Because it says, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel. This is what God says to Ezekiel, that they may be ashamed in their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple. It's all predicated on ifs and should they. And if they don't, it's not gonna come about. And we have seen that time and time again through scripture. The response of the Jews to their opportunity to return and rebuild the temple was notoriously uh, unstable after they got out of uh, bondage. Only a small remnant opted even to return to Jerusalem. This is how lackadaisical they were once they came out of uh, bondage, while the rest remained in Babylon. So, as a result, the temple they built proved to be an inferior one to the one Ezekiel described. Though the Jews did not meet the conditions we have of the temple in Ezekiel's vision and pattern described, and it never occurred. We have in Christ the type and shadow of the heavenly things that he brought, Hebrews 8, 5. And that's again, why Hebrews is so important. And this was the long-term purpose served by that vision in any way. So whether or not the temple had ever actually been rebuilt, the new revelation in Christ encourages us to see its pattern having been completely fulfilled in him that the revelation of Christ is the fulfillment of all things that have not occurred yet. And with his final atoning sacrifice and his being our eternal high priest entering to the Holy of Holies uh, once and for all on behalf of each of us being effective. We'll end there. I know it was a lot. Questions, comments? Hmm. Oh, go Wendy, go Vanna. Please say your name for our home audience. Oh, I didn't know I'd be on. <laughs> oh, you won't be on the camera, this is your first okay, name. Travis. And I just wanted to point something out I thought was interesting. In Ezekiel, he says, let them, rather than telling them, tell them to. Oh. Where with John, he he told him, do not measure it. Oh, But in Zeke always said, let them measure it. Huh. Very good. Right, thank I you. I'm point that out. Thanks, Travis. Anything else? Okay. Um, maybe next week we will introduce to you the changes that are going to go on with uh, our ministry on Tuesday nights. Won't do it now. And uh, after we do the verse by verse, we'll talk about it because it's coming on October 31st, the anniversary of Martin Luther apparent anniversary uh, nailing his 95 thesis to the door at Wittenberg. and uh, but we will give you a taste of how the show's going to open. It is provocative, to say the least. Um, but first let's uh, have a prayer. We'll cut off the cameras. You guys at home don't get to see. only campus people here because you'll see live on October 31st when we launch the new two shows. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Book of Revelation, we want to understand it and we want it to have uh, application in our Christian lives. Uh, Not to argue, uh, not to be fearful, but to love. Help us to exit from here, Lord, be better Christians, filled with your spirit, die to our flesh, live to the spirit, live for you as our God and King. And we just pray that we will be fortified by your spirit and not the words of man, not the things I say, And the things I say, always subject to scrutiny and testing and forget them if they're no good, uh, Lord, we pray, you'll help us to do that. Uh, But we seek you in spirit and truth. And we know that relationship with you is not based on a geographical location any longer, that you are our high priest and you did make intercession once and for all with your unchangeable priesthood. And uh, we can look to that with certainty and truth. So be with us now as we consider uh, uh, the things you have for us this week. And if we can come back and be together again, we pray it will happen. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you cut that off?